All right. This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 30 through 37. So you might want to open your Bibles to there. If you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles, you can turn to page 845 and that will bring you to Mark chapter 9. So this is not a Father's Day message, but I think it is appropriate for fathers. The title of the message is The True Essence of Greatness. The True Essence of Greatness. Who wants to be a great father? Half of you. Very good. Excellent. (laughs) Well, this isn't just for fathers. It's for all of us today, but I think uh, you'll benefit from it as dads. The True Essence of Greatness. Inside of your bulletins, there's an outline in case you don't know that you can follow along on the left-hand side. I don't know if you know who Warren Buffett is, but uh, depending on what list you look at, he is the second or third richest man in the world. He is a billionaire. That's a lot of millions in a billion. And he primarily acquired his wealth through investing trading stocks, investing in companies. He is what is known as a contrarian trader. A contrarian trader. Let me just read you a quote and then I'll explain that. And I'm doing that because, well, you'll see in a moment. Here's his quote. We simply attempt to be fearful when others are greedy and to be greedy only when others are fearful. And what he means by that is when a stock is being or is plummeting because people are selling off because they're afraid that the stock can't go higher and they better get their investment back now, that's when he's buying the stock. So he does the exact opposite of what the masses do. When they're fearful, he gets greedy and he just keeps buying that stock up, knowing or believing at some point that stock will regain its value and with it he'll regain a a great profit. And the opposite is true, too. When people are greedy and they think this stock's going to go to the moon and they're buying like crazy, he either chooses not to buy or he sells the positions that he has. So that's how he's made his, his fortunes. I believe only... Oh, I can't think. Who's the guy at Microsoft? All of a sudden I forgot. Bill Gates, I think, is very, they're very close. He's right ahead of him and possibly some tycoon and in South America or Mexico is above. But this guy is filthy rich, and this is how he's done it, through this contrarian approach to trading. Do the opposite of what the masses do. Okay? He, he does not follow the, the sheep. He does not go, ah, and just follow what all everyone else is doing, but he, he marches to the beat of his own drum in a sense. Well, Jesus was a contrarian, beloved. He was a contrarian. His ways and teachings were often the very opposite of what the masses thought should be done or should be learned or should be understood. And the reality is not a lot has changed from Jesus' culture to our culture. His instructions regularly run contrary to what our culture believes and practices and teaches. Jesus was a contrarian. We need to be contrarians too. So let's look at the text together as we dive in. Mark chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 30 through 37. 
It says they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but Him who sent me. This morning we're going to consider two contrarian ideas, just two, regarding greatness so that we might know how to achieve success the way Jesus has defined it. The way Jesus has defined it. Which is quite different, as you'll see in a moment, than the way the world has defined it. So let me talk a little bit about the background here. First, The first two verses Chapter 9, verse 30 and 32. They left Caesarea Philippi. That's where they were before. Where Jesus had, as you may know from previous week, cast out the demons that the disciples, his followers, had failed to exercise primarily due to their misplaced confidence. They had placed confidence in themselves instead of God to overpower this demon. Now they are headed south through Galilee. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Why? He's going to die. He's on a mission. And he has no intentions now of continuing his public ministry in Galilee. So he kept his travel through the area secret, a private. That's what the text is referencing. If they knew he was there, he would have been bombarded by the crowds like he had been in the past. But he's on a mission, a mission to death. His focus now is to prepare his men for what he knows is coming, but they're still a little confused about. And they are not ready. Because they do not understand Jesus' mission in full. Now this is the second time that Jesus clearly communicated to his disciples the hard truth about his coming death. We see that in the first few verses here. This foretelling, speaking about what's going to happen in the future, to the twelve of Jesus' death and resurrection is recorded three times in Mark. And we've talked about this, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The first time we saw it, or that we looked at it, was in chapter 8, verse 31. And by way of remember, remembering, on that occasion, Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus told them, listen, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected. Peter rebukes him. And says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. (laughs) This resulted in Jesus telling Peter, among other things, quote, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The text we are looking at today begins again with Jesus telling his disciples, now the second time, about his impending death and resurrection. Unfortunately, the disciples' response is just as inappropriate as it was the last time. 
Verse 32 indicates that they still don't understand how death and a reigning Messiah or conquering king could possibly go together. And this time, out of fear, according to the text, they decided to shut their mouths. Possibly because they remember what happened last time when Peter opened up his mouth and the rebuke that that brought from their master. Matthew 17.23, which is another gospel that presents the same story, adds the fact that when Jesus said He was going to die, that the disciples became greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. Even though they didn't know exactly or understand exactly what Jesus was saying, the news that He was sharing with them was certainly not positive (laughs) from their perspective. Okay, we're on the other side of the cross. So the fact that Jesus was going to die and be resurrected is great news for us. But then and there, for them, this was not good news. And it was confusing. They were focused on the hopes and dreams of God's kingdom becoming a reality for them in the very near future through Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would be the king. But Jesus kept talking about being killed. I can only imagine the conversations they were having. Why does He continue to be so negative? (laughs) He needs to stay positive. You know, don't speak such negative words like you're going to go die. I mean, after all, He is the key to our glory. And this is where it gets really ironic. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. (laughs) Jesus, listen, this is just unbelievable. He, He recently shared with his disciples the hard truth about his upcoming suffering and death. But the focus of the disciples' conversation on their road trip was a heated debate. Not about Jesus. Not about His death. Not about His resurrection. Not about the greatness of who He was. But who was the greatest among the twelve? Verse 34, I, their silence here appears to be due to the fact, and that's why Mark's bringing it up, that they were ashamed to reveal the subject of their argument. You ever done this to your kids, you know? Hey, what were you guys talking about? Nothing? Then you know it's bad. <laughs> and that's what's going on here. They didn't want to talk. It was almost like conviction had set in. In light of Jesus' words about suffering and death, the disciples' fixation on where they stood among the others in matters of rank and honor is pathetic and embarrassing, to say the least. One writer says, Jesus speaks of surrendering His life. The disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. Garland, another writer, says, Jesus, and I like this, walks ahead in silence 
on his way to his sacrificial death, while his straggling disciples push and shove, trying to establish the order of the procession behind him. It was typical that the master would walk in front and the disciples would follow from behind. And they're trying to determine, in a sense, who walks closer to Jesus. Who's the greatest among the twelve? Well, why did this argument take place in the first place? Why did it happen? Because the text doesn't tell us. But there is some information that we should consider, some background information that might help us understand why they got into this discussion in the first place. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, and now I'm going back into our text, three of the twelve disciples, three of them, were asked by Jesus to accompany him up a high mountain while the others, the other nine, were left behind. We looked at this a few weeks ago. At the mountain, or on top of that mountain, these three and Jesus had front row seats to the glorious transfiguration of Jesus. And they saw the supernatural appearance of Moses and Elijah, who were there talking with Jesus. Pretty important. Pretty significant. Pretty awesome. They basically, in a sense, got front row seats at a Lakers game. That would be, I mean, it doesn't even compare. But you understand, they, they, the other guys were left behind. They weren't even in the building. They, were, they didn't see it. But these three were invited in and given front row seats to some spectacular display of Christ. But this is not the first time that Jesus has paid special attention to these three or granted them access to Jesus that the others simply did not get. It also happened in Mark chapter 5, verse 37. This is going back a little bit. When Jesus left the other disciples behind and took the same three, allowing them and only them to go to the home of a man whose daughter was in in the process of dying. She was sick. She was ill. And if you remember when Jesus got there, she was dead. Jesus and the three and the mother and the father were taken into the house and were eyewitnesses of another incredible event. Jesus brought her back from the dead. He resurrected her. By the way, this will not be the last time that the three are given special privileges. When we get to Mark chapter 14, verse 32, again, these three, Peter, James, and John, will be separated from the twelve. This time to pray with Jesus on the night of his crucifixion. Or the eve of his crucifixion. Now the Bible does not tell us exactly why these, got, why these three got special privileges. Some just think that they were the leaders of the group. But the text doesn't tell us that. But it is reasonable to assume as we see this taking place that these events would have created some tension and questions among the twelve about how they ranked with Jesus, and as a result, how they would rank and be honored in His anticipated kingdom. You understand what I'm saying? So what we've got here, basically, it looks like these three are getting some special attention, and maybe that means these three are more important or more significant or greater than the other nine. And so you can only imagine... The conversations, well, he didn't take you up to the mountain. I mean, the text doesn't tell us that, but you can imagine how people are, how we are. (laughs) One writer also adds this fact. 
The disciples, quote, preoccupation with rank and standing is in character with what we know of Judaism in general. Rabbinic writings, that's the rabbis, this is what they wrote, these were the Jewish teachers, frequently comment on the seating order in paradise. For example, and argue that the just would sit nearer to the throne of God than even the angels. There's significance there. There's, it's important to them and they think there's going to be a seating order. And that seating order works like this. If you're more important, if you're more significant, you, seek, you sit closer to God than the guys down at the end of the table. Jesus, on more than one occasion, rebuked the religious leaders for their love of this personal honor and their focus on their self-importance. Matthew 23. You can flip there if you'd like. It's just to the left, or you can pop your head up here on the screen. Matthew 23. I'll just read a couple of passages to you. Verse 6 says, And they, speaking of the religious leaders, love the place of honor at feast. These are banquets. Dinner parties. Okay? They love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues. That's the church. Jewish church. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. That's what they love. But Jesus says in verse 12, whoever exalts himself, whoever lifts himself up, whoever tries to make himself look like he's something, will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's not the first time that Jesus has said that. Not the only time either. Turn to page uh, 873. This is to your right. I want you to see this. It's Luke chapter... Like you all use that Bible. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can turn to page 873. Here we have a dinner that Jesus is having at a Pharisee's home, one of the religious leaders. He's been invited over to have a meal. Verse 7, Now he told the parable, that is Jesus, to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So in other words, here's what goes on. As they walk in, they're all scrambling for the seat that represents the greatest honor in that house. Saying to them, verse 8, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast... Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Here it is again. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The importance and necessity of humility is consistently taught by Jesus through his words and his deeds. And that, beloved, brings us to the first point of the outline, which is humility is a pole position. Humility is a pole position. This is dangerous, but are there any racing fans in here? Two. Woo! All right. Do you guys know what a pole position is? Do you? 
Front runner? Okay. Huh? Okay. Here's for the rest of you who are not racing fans. There used to be a game called Pole Position when I in the 80s. Yeah. All right. Now I got some people. Right? Pole. <laughs> the phrase comes from a, a horse racing term. That's where it originated, where the starter, the starter horse, all the way to the inside is up against the pole. That is the best place to start in the horse. So you know how you have him lined up? He's the one all the way on the inside. That is the pole position. That is the position on the course that will give you the greatest chance of winning that race. You have a, an advantage. Maybe not a huge advantage, but you have an advantage over the rest of those in the heap. They do the same thing in car racing. They'll actually do different things, but they qualify through their qualifying rounds. That positions them on the course, and everyone's shooting to be placed in the pole position, that best spot inside on the course. So I like that because I like the imagery of that. So I said humility is a pole position. It is the spot that provides the best advantage for success or for winning the race. So let's look at that a little bit. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. And he looked back at the text. Mark 9, 35. And he sat down. This is after he found out they were arguing about who's the greatest. And he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. Now, it is important to note that Jesus did not scold his men, this is key, for wanting to be first as an order of importance or greatness. He did not say, how dare you want to be great? He didn't say that. He said, do you want to be great? Williamson says this, Jesus does not despise the desire to be first. But his definition of greatness stands the world's ordering of priorities on its head and radically challenges a fundamental assumption about achievement. In fact, I would recommend to you a book. It's called Rescuing Ambition by Dave Harvey. There's a forward in here by C.J. Mahaney. He's the same guy that writes The Cross-Centered Life that we give out. Excellent book. But the idea is ambition in and of itself is not evil. It's not sinful, but it needs to be rescued from what it has become. And so ambition should be rescued to the glory of God. And you'll notice on the cover it shows this guy. He's actually climbing down the ladder, if that will give you any idea of, of what the point of the book is. An excellent book, Rescuing Ambition. There is nothing wrong with excellence and pursuing greatness as long as we pursue it as it is defined by the one who establishes what greatness is. So here, Jesus likes, as we've seen before, to use these paradoxical statements. And all that means is, is it's a statement that con- appears to contradict itself. Like in his teaching in Mark chapter 8.35, we looked at this uh, some time back. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. Huh? Now, we, you can go back and listen to that message because we're not going to describe all that. But it's, it's, it's paradoxical. It seems like it contradicts itself. Here, he's doing it again. 
He says, hey guys, you want to be great? Yeah? What you want? You want to be first? That's good. So here's how you do that. You choose to be last of all. (laughs) Poor disciples. The way up is the way down. You're going to climb the ladder to the bottom rung. (laughs) Okay, Jesus. Let's look at this a little bit. He's a contrarian. The Greek word there, eschatos, the word for last, he who wants to be first shall be last, eschatos. You might, it might sound familiar to you because we use the word eschatology to talk about the end of time or the things that will happen at the end of time, eschatology. Revelation is a book that we put into that category of eschatology. It can mean last in place or time. It certainly can mean that. But figuratively, it can also mean lowest in status, last in rank, least important, or least honorable. That's kind of saying the same thing four different ways. The passage in Luke, in fact, that we just looked at earlier, where Jesus says, Give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. Same word. Same exact word. In fact, one translation just translates it last. But lowest place probably better communicates what Jesus was saying there. Lowest place in Luke, as we look at that, as we looked at that in Luke about this parable about the the dinner, right? It's not a reference to the elevation of the earth or the height of the seat. I mean, I'm just stating the obvious, but I want to make sure we're real clear. Jesus is not saying, go find the shortest seat to sit in or the seat that has the lowest spot on the planet. He's saying, take the spot that has the lowest honor, the least ranking among all the seats. Because in the culture, the closer a person was to the host the greater was the guest or that guest position of honor. Okay, So it could be something like the front row seats here. Theoretically, have the greatest honor if we, were, if we were looking at it the same way, even though typically they're avoided, which is usually here in our culture, we think the back row seats have the greatest honor. That's the only thing I, way I can understand it. But in the culture, front row seats in that culture... Or the idea of being close to the host was the greatest honor. In order to purposely choose to place yourself in the position of least importance or lowest rank, in other words, pick the seat of lowest honor, in order to do that among your peers will absolutely require an attitude of humility expressed in a willingness to purposely humble Yourself. Purposely humble yourself. Jesus' statement here, regarding Jesus' statement, if anyone would be first, he must be last. One writer says, he will voluntarily humble himself to assume the position of being last of all in his own circle. 
But the opposite, beloved, was true of the disciples because they were arguing among one another and making their case for who was first or greatest in their circle. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anyone greater than Jesus Christ. Can you? I mean, if we're going to put a, put a bar on this, the greatest, who's greater? It's got to be Jesus Christ, right? But His exaltation, His true greatness is linked directly to His willingness to humble Himself. Look at Philippians. You're going to turn to the right in your Bibles. Page 980 if you're using one of those church Bibles. Philippians chapter 2. A very familiar verse to many. But I want to read it. Especially in this context. I want us to hear it. I want to see it myself again. I want it to penetrate my mind. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but made himself what? Nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's what it is to be nothing. (laughs) And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What kind of death? Even death on a cross. The most cruel and shameful death that someone could experience. Verse 9, Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted Him, lifted Him up, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. He is the greatest, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what? I'll never know how difficult it was, but I I can guarantee you it could not have been easy for Jesus to temporarily surrender the glories of heaven to come down to here, to earth, and then take on such a humble and low position as a man and endure all the misunderstandings and ill-treatment even being handled like a wicked criminal and crucified on a cruel cross. But beloved, He did that willingly. He did it willingly. He chose to do that. He humbled Himself. And for that, God has highly exalted Him for all eternity, for all time. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that He has not already done. So here's a little application. This Christ 
seeing Jesus humbling himself, by the way, that we just read, it is the example that Paul is giving as he tells the church how they should live their lives. Look back, if you're still in Philippians, hopefully you're still there, page 980 in those church Bibles. Look back up, Philippians 2, verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul is saying, you, you want to have a reason? You want, you want the evidence to demonstrate this is how you must live your life? This is it. You are to have the same mind, the mind of Christ, the one that says, I will willingly surrender myself to humility, to being humbled, to leaving the glories of heaven and being born a man, suffering and dying in their place while they cry out, crucify me. And I'll do it. I'll do it. That's our model. That's our example. So just ask yourself a question. There are, there are many ways to apply this, and you need to think through that. But what's more important here is you get the idea, the point. Do we always need to be first? Do we always need to be first? Ask yourself that. Or are we content to place ourselves in the lowest place? In the place of least honor? And just think about these things as you consider your marriage, the church, your job, your relationship with your children. Humility, beloved, is a pole position. It is the best place to be on the course of life. Second, serving is a positive preoccupation. Now, here's another word that I like it. That's why I used it. Preoccupation. To have a preoccupation is to, is to have your attention taken up or consumed with something or someone. And typically the word is used in a very negative sense to speak of an obsession or fixation on something to the detriment of something else. For instance, people say he has a preoccupation with money. And what that typically means is he's after money and he doesn't care how he gets it and nothing else matters to him. He's set on it, right? Or they have a preoccupation with fame. They will do anything to be famous or popular. When I'm sitting at the table, this happens regularly for dinner. And my wife and my daughter are there and, and they look at each other and they go, Dad's preoccupied again because I'm gone. I'm there, but I'm gone, meaning my mind is focused, usually on you guys, usually. That's where it is, on the church. 
Uh, I'm preoccupied that I'm consumed by it, and I, I don't even literally sometimes even remember I'm at the dinner table. I'm just gone somewhere else. So this is the idea of preoccupation. But serving is a positive preoccupation. It is something good to be consumed by, to be fixed on. Look back at the text. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Again, he sat down, he called the twelve, he said to them, Hey, you guys, anyone want to be first? You want to be the greatest? You must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says, hey, listen, guys, you want to be great in God's eyes? Okay. You're going to have to stop exalting yourselves and instead be willing to humble yourselves by voluntarily taking a low, low position. A position that your peers consider to be of least importance or lowest in rank. You're going to need to be servant of all. The word servant here in the Greek, in the original language, it means someone who willingly provides a service to others without charge. In other words, they are not obligated in any way as a slave or a hired person would be. A slave has to do what they do. They have no choice. A hired person is receiving a wage to do that task. But a servant here is someone who serves because they want to. Because they choose to. It is voluntary. It is not compulsory. It is not forced. It is not mandated. Right? This is what happens sometimes. You guys are going to serve because that's what you do as a Christian. You serve. So we're going to have a list and all, whatever, how many of you are going to sign up and you're going to serve. You better do it. And then, you know, they do it and they're guilted into it. That's not what he's saying here. We're not becoming a servant because we feel guilted into it or someone's whipping us in the back or there's some obligation. This servant of all willingly He doesn't have to, but he willingly places himself low, becoming a servant of all. Now, the difficulty was, according to one writer, the Greek world. Remember the world? The world had been dominated by Greek thought. By the way, a lot of the way we think is a residue from Greek culture. I'm not going to get into all that, but the world had been dominated by the Greek world. And they had influenced the people. And it was generally considered in a Greek culture, they saw service as demeaning and undignified. Demeaning and undignified. In fact, Plato, you guys know Plato? Even if you don't, it doesn't matter. But he was a great Greek philosopher and the schools make you read this stuff when you're going through it. Some of them still do. He was quoted as saying, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Uh, we're not much different today, really, I don't think. I think that's still in our culture. The world that Jesus encountered had been greatly influenced, as I said, by this thinking, this Greek culture. For the great, service was not something you did. Service was something you received. 
But Jesus was saying the exact opposite. Now, look back. Or don't look back. Look at Luke. So if you're in Mark, turn to the right. If you're in Philippians, turn to the left. Luke 22, page 882, if you're using one of those church Bibles. See what the Lord says here. We looked at this passage, I believe, at our men's night out uh, two nights ago. Luke 22. This, this is after the Last Supper. This is on the eve, okay, on the eve of the crucifixion. So this event is taking place. The supper has happened. And there's a disclosure. Jesus makes this disclosure about someone who was going to betray him. So verse 24, a dispute arose among them. A dispute arose because there's this idea that one among them was going to betray them, betray Jesus. So now they're like, well, who's, who here is the greatest? I wouldn't betray Jesus. Would you betray Jesus? Oh no, I wouldn't betray Jesus. I'm, look at me, I'm great. I'm the greatest. And so it says in verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Beloved, this is on the night of his crucifixion. The eve of it. This is the kind of conversations they're still having. Verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Like they rule, like tyrants. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. That's kind of irony there. That's sarcasm. Benefactors is the idea that he actually, the leader provides an aid to his people. He's there for his people. But he's not at all. They call them benefactors, but they lord over them. They make them their slaves. Look at verse 26. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table? That means they sit down to eat. Or one who serves, they serve the people. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Right now he's saying, is that not how we understand it in our culture? The answer would be, well, certainly it's the one who reclines at the table, Jesus. He's the greater. That's why he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. You guys are, you guys are confused. And no doubt, if you look at John 13, verses 4 through 17, and you put this whole night together, this is after he has just washed the disciples' feet, putting on a servant's outfit, setting aside his clothes, and and stooping to the level of foot washing for his disciples, potentially even washing the feet of the one who would betray him just a few hours later. I'm among you as the one who serves. You think I'm great? He didn't just talk about serving. He modeled it. He lived it. And he ultimately died doing it. Look back at Mark, or actually Mark 10.45. I'll just read this to you. We're going to get there soon. For even the Son of Man came. Why? Why? Not to be served, although he could have demanded it, but to serve 
and to give His life as a ransom for many. Beloved, you and I can be preoccupied with a lot of different things. (laughs) I know I am. I'm going to assume for a second maybe some of you are. But a lot of those things have very little value in this world or in our lives. But serving is not one of them. Serving is not a preoccupation that has little value in our world or in our lives. One writer says this, Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and privileged. Although that's what it appears to be in our world. It is not reserved for the gifted and privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple task of serving others. Indeed, the more common and humble the task, the greater the deed. For humility is the essence of Him who said, but I am among you as the one who serves. Beloved, do you want to be great according to God's standard? I trust you do. I hope you do. I pray that you do. If we have any hope or shot at doing that, then we have to seek to serve rather than than be served. And by the way, just a side note, that means we have to accept the service of others. That in itself is a humbling thing. I don't need your help. Well, then how am I going to serve if you don't let me help? Right? That's what Peter did, remember? At the foot washing? John 13, 8. Jesus picks up, puts, sets aside his, his normal clothes, puts on the garb of a servant, picks up that bowl, bends down, begins to wash his disciples' feet. He gets to Peter, or I don't even know if he got that far. Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. What are you doing down there, Jesus? Remember that? (laughs) Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter says, okay, wash everything then. Do it all. Right? But Peter, you're not going to do that. I don't need that from you. This applies, beloved, and you work it out in your own life. I don't, you guys are smart. I need to tell you how to figure this out. But it applies in every area of your life, whether it be with your children or your spouse, again, or your church or your work or community. You want to be great? Seek to serve. Ask the question, how can I serve my woman? Wife, significant other, depending on where you are in status of life. How can I serve my man? Husband. How can I serve my family, my children? How can I serve my employer? How can I serve my community? How can I serve my employees? And when you've asked that question, then ask, how can I serve them more? How can I serve them better? There you listen, God has put into us a desire to be great. 
because he is great and we are made in his image. But we fight against that greatness by demanding to be served and exalting ourselves. We're crazy. (laughs) We need to get our thinking right. Finally, beloved, we're almost done. Jesus drives home his point now with this illustration. Jesus loved to illustrate his points. That's why pastors try to do it, but none do it as well as the Lord. Look back at the text, Mark 9, verse 36. This is just Jesus saying, okay, you heard what I said, now I'm going to demonstrate it. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So look at this. Jesus, here's, he's in this house. We don't know what house it is. It's not important. Here's the child. He finds the child. According to Luke chapter 9.47, that adds to the fact that he stands the child up in the middle of him. So in a typical setting, here's Jesus. He's sitting. We're told that's the position of the teacher. There would be a half circle around him of his disciples hearing these wonderful world words from Christ. Here's a child in the house, because that's where they are. He grabs the child and he stands the child next to him. And now they're staring at the kid. Jesus then takes this child and cradles him in his arms. A detail that only Mark records. Now listen, what is that all about? In Judaism, children and women were largely secondary members of society whose connection to the social mainstream depended on men either as fathers or husbands. Children in particular were thought of as, quote, not having arrived. They were good illustrations of the very last, the lowest in rank. In fact, when we get to Mark 10.13, you'll see they were bringing children to Jesus that He might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. What are you doing? We don't have time for these Kids, we'll get there. Is they got this mentality, and I've heard it before. Children are to be seen and not heard. Some would go even farther that they shouldn't even be seen, except once in a while. Okay, they they had a very low position as far as status in the Jewish world. They continue to have a low position in many places in our world. One writer says, the meaning of the symbolic action, this Jesus putting, grabbing this child, standing them up, standing him or her in front of these, his disciples, then cradling this child, the meaning of that cannot be grasped without recognition of the lowly place occupied by children in ancient society. So, to be a servant of all included giving attention to a child the least significant person in Jewish as well as Greco-Roman society which idealized the mature adult. He's making a point. And here it is. If one wants to be great, one should shower attention on those who are regarded as insignificant as Jesus Himself has done. Jesus requires His great disciples to show humble service to the humble. That's the point. 
He takes the lowest, one of the lowest, and he says, see, you guys don't have any time for that low person in society. You don't, you don't have any time because you're so great. You're such a big deal. But here I am, Jesus, again, demonstrating to you. Come here. And showing kindness and compassion and care for the lowest, the least significant. It's an illustration. So he's not, he's not saying run out and start orphanages, although there's nothing, there's, that's good. But it was an illustration. Yes, even to the least you would serve. And then after lifting that child into his arms, Jesus says these words in Mark 9.37, Whoever receives one such child in my name, he receives me. And whoever receives me, receives me, not me, but him who sent me. Anyone who receives, that's the word he uses, is the same word that he used in Mark chapter 6, verse 11. When Jesus sent out his disciples, and he said, if anyone receives you, welcomes you, and if anyone does not receive you, then you need to leave and kick the dirt off your feet. It's that same idea, this accepting or welcoming. So anyone who receives or accepts or welcomes those, remember the child is an illustration, without any status or significance by the world's standards, are really, are really receiving or accepting or welcoming Jesus and His Father. Wow. One writer says, Christ regards this act as being done to Himself. Another writer says, this gives dignity to the task of serving others. Yeah, you think this service to the lowest has no significance? It has all the significance in the world because it is as if you are doing it to Christ Himself and to His Father. That's pretty serious. So, just by way of conclusion, what the world considers weakness, beloved, what the world considers weakness, Jesus calls greatness. Humble yourself by placing yourself last among others and strive to serve one another rather than being served. This is the nature, the essence of true Greatness. This glorifies God. And this is absolutely contrary to the world's behavior and our sinful nature. That's why we're going to need to fully depend upon the Holy Spirit if we have any shot, any chance, any hope at being great. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word and I thank You for the people that You have gathered here today. Lord, may Your Word penetrate our minds and not stop there but go to our hearts and not stop there but impact our wills, our decisions, the choices that we make today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. Father, would You remind us continually as You recall this Word to our minds that in order to be great, 
We must be last. We must place ourselves in that position. We must be willing to humble ourselves, not exalt ourselves. And Father, help us to have the strength and the courage and the grace to be a servant. To be a servant of all. To serve in the way that our Master did. To lay it all down for another. Father, help us because we are weak and we are often pathetic. So we cannot rely upon our own strength to do these things, but we have Your Spirit residing inside of us, those who call Jesus Lord and Savior. So Father, we ask through that very Spirit that You empower us to be great for You. In Jesus' name, Amen.